Good morning, everyone. My name is Peter. I'm one of the pastors here, and I want to introduce our dear storyteller for the day. Uh, for those of you who don't know, uh, we like to have what's called storytelling at our church, and that's when a person from the congregation uh, tells a story. It could be about anything, but it's just a way for us to get to feel connected to the people that we gather with week after week. And today we have, as our storyteller, Mark Pearson. Um, he's very near, near and dear to me. I mean, literally, he lives a block from me, and uh, I've gotten to know him and his family, and he saved me a ton of money because he pays my girls to babysit his. So Mark, come on up and tell us your story. All right, let's see if I can do this mic thing and slides. Oh, yeah, it works. Okay, I want to share a story about some transformation I've been going through uh, over the last few months. Uh, but to do that, I got to tell you a bit about the last year, and we got to go all the way back to childhood, and that's going to be the fun part for me. Um, oh, man. Okay, so 2018 is about a year ago. Um, I, had, I was about five years in at Amazon, and things are going really well, uh, and then all of a sudden they started going really bad. I'm going to whiz through a bunch of this stuff pretty quick. Um, so got a new manager, tox the uh, toxic culture kind of kicked in, uh, and it really ruined me kind of personally. And this is where the transformation sort of started. Uh, I didn't like that it ruined me that much. I didn't like that work could sort of control me that much. So in 2019, uh, I took a new job at a new company, um, and it was pretty good. The, the culture was more healthy, um, more time with my family. Everything was great, but uh, I was still kind of miserable. And uh, what I found was this was the first time in my life I was really working, just trying to do work and not, you know, pursue some big goal or be the best. Um, and it probably sounds kind of dumb, but I just, I don't know, I didn't know how to live that way. So, you know, why is that? If we go all the way back to the beginning now, um, my life was really kind of defined in a lot of ways by performance, um, whether it was athletics in high school, academics in college, career. It was kind of just always about just being the best. Um, and so this journey is really about kind of going back deeper into why, like why was I like that? Uh, so I'm gonna share two reasons with you today. The first one is one that uh, I've known for quite a while. Second one is uh, the newer stuff. Uh, so the first one, uh, if we go back, uh, I had a sister growing up, one sister, her name's Becca, and uh, she's really disabled, uh, like, like, like really badly disabled. So can't walk, can't talk, uh, seizures all the time, heavily medicated. And, you know, that's a whole other storytelling session. Uh, just, you know, seeing her have seizures in public, uh, seeing people make fun of her, it's, it's crazy. <sighs> Growing up with that. So the way I learned to cope was, um, you know, nobody ever told me this. It was just a subconscious thing. Um, you know, if she's really broken, then I need to be amazing. Um, I, need to be, I need to be perfect. Um, I'm not saying any of this is healthy, by the way, but this is where I was at. Um, and so that kind of worked for me for years, uh, but it, it started not working for me this last year in this new job. I was trying to not live that way for the first time. And I was having a hard time doing that and just, again, kind of becoming miserable. Peter at the time recommended this book, uh, Second Mountain, it was pretty helpful, and just a couple cliff notes on it. Uh, 
the author talks about performance-oriented people uh, are often driven by pain and suffering from their past. So that resonated with me. He encourages folks to explore deeply the pain of your life. Try to bridge the gap from your childhood, uh, the pain of that, to, the, to your behavior as an adult. And one line that really hit me was this um, pain, pain that's not transformed is transmitted. And that one hit me pretty hard, just, and really got me thinking about childhood. And, you know, we just talked about my sister, and I kind of knew a lot about that. And uh, mom and I didn't have a lot of friction growing up, but this guy, <laughs> yeah, we had a lot of friction. So, <laughs> so let's talk about that. So the caveat on this is he really is an amazing man. He's changed a lot. I respect him a lot now. But man, growing up, uh, you know, it was really, the whole situation was hard on all of us. And, uh, yeah, just like, he was angry all the time. Uh, I got a lot of criticism from him, uh, even ridicule. And I was going through this exercise, uh, reading this book, and trying, I was just going back and writing down stories from my past. And the one that stood out the most was this, this one. I'll tell you really quickly. So I was really into competitive swimming. And you know, it's a sport where you're racing and you're trying to post faster times and make faster meets, regionals, nationals, whatever. And this one year, I think it was sophomore year of high school, I was um, trying to get this thing called zone cuts. And I had been training really hard and I, I missed them at this big meet. And anyway, dad and I were arguing about something, I don't remember what, and he brought this up and he goes, uh, he said something like, you know, Mark, you've been trying so hard to get these zone cuts and you just can't do it. Um, even, even some of the younger, smaller kids on the team, they can make those cuts, and, and you can't. Sort of a joke. He told me it was sort of a joke. And so, do you, have you ever had that thing where you see red when you're so angry? Or if you heard about that? So I actually, I blew right through that. There's like a level past that, apparently. Um, and it was, you go straight to pure hatred. Like crystallized hatred. And it was really calm, and I was just resolved in that moment to just get those cuts and, and out of spite for this guy. And so I trained really hard for, you know, six months and, um, and poured all my anger into that training. And I got the cuts. And what that turned into is basically a pattern of, uh, I call it the flywheel of performance. <laughs> so... Use extreme anger to overcome extreme pain, because the, the training in that sport is really painful. Uh, and if you do that, you get incredible performance and incredible results. Um, I got that. And this was the kicker. I found people love me. My coach loved me for doing that. And, and then fast forward to college, my professors loved me for performing like this. My, my bosses at work loved me for this. And so it was, it was helpful, but it was also a trap. Um, and so, you know, back to this whole why, why am I like this? Yes, we talked about my sister, knew about that for years. This new revelation in the past few months was this thing about my dad. Like, oh man, I've been, you know, trying to perform like this and be perfect for all these other people basically to fill in this gap from this guy that I didn't really feel love from growing up. Uh, so now what? So it's this huge revelation, a big profound whatever, but it's like, what do I, what do, I do with it? I'm just, I'm just exploring and opening up all these old wounds. It's really painful. Uh, I'm just, again, I'm just miserable. This was, this was, last summer was just terrible going through all this. And um, then I ended up on this flight down to San Francisco for work. And I'm just thinking about it, writing, praying about it. And I had this moment of just anger. Uh, obviously, that's one of the big themes for today, just angry person, um, trying, to, trying to do better. 
Um, and so I was angry at God, and I was like, you just, you got to give me something to work with. Um, it's just too painful. And um, so then I have this memory of this guy, Dr. Anderson, and he's a family therapist we had for years. He was through all the stuff uh, from childhood. He'd been there for that, and he passed away a couple years ago. And in one of the last sessions I had with him, he told me this story uh, about this dream where it's him around this fire with all these philosophers and theologians, all the famous ones, and they're talking to Jesus and debating all these different points, uh, theological points, whatever, and his name's Doug, Doug Anderson. Doug stands up and he looks at Jesus and he just says, yeah, but what's the most important thing? And, yeah, this work gets kind of hard. Jesus looked at him and just said, I love you no matter what. And that memory came back and hit me, and uh, I just felt like God was kind of talking to me in that moment, and so I wrote down what he, what he said to me, and it was basically all this. So, you are infinitely valued by me. You don't need to be defined by your performance anymore. You don't need to be perfect to be loved. This is the love you were supposed to feel from your father. This is thousands of dollars of therapy, by the way, to get through all this. Um, this is your purpose now. Show this love to others. Show this love to your kids. They don't have to be perfect either. Show this love to everybody for the rest of your life. So this is where I finally started to feel actually healed. This blew up that flywheel of performance. Um, so I'm still on this journey. Uh, it's not perfect. It's, it's still kind of a mess. Um, but I'm okay with that. Uh, I feel like there's progress, you know, and it feels kind of real for the first time. Um, and I have hope. I have hope there's a new mountain to climb ahead uh, that's not defined by a pursuit of perfection anymore. Um, I think the next mountain in my life is defined by love for other people and just being content with who I am, uh, even though I'm broken. That's it. Thanks. Um, so scripture reading for today. Uh, Proverbs uh, 27, 17. You can follow along in your Bibles if you want. As iron sharpens iron, so one person sharpens another. The word of the Lord. Okay. I don't feel like we need a sermon. I don't know. <laughs> it's like a wedding where the appetizers are way better than the dinner. That's coming. Um, but I do want to get through this verse, and uh, I think it very much is related to what Mark shared, so I'm thankful for that. Uh, we're continuing in our series this morning in the book of Proverbs, and uh, it's just one verse, and I have one question uh, for us as we begin. I want to ask the question, do you believe that God speaks? I know it's a church, you have to say yes. Um, <laughs> I want you to think about that. Mark said he felt like God spoke on the plane. And now, I've, I've known Mark very intimately. We've walked uh, with tears and uh, joy and pain together for these years. And 
never has he said God speaks. Um, and then when I read the story this week, when he shared uh, the version, earlier version, and he talked about God speaking, I thought, who is this guy? He's not the type to say God speaks. doesn't say that. He doesn't want to create that effect. You know, he doesn't want to make the other person feel whatever they're feeling about the person who says God speaks. You know, and Christians say God speaks all the time, and it's just, it just feels silly. It feels like they use that to get their agenda across. It's easy to say that. It's easy to be coercive or manipulative by saying God speaks. Um, and I feel that way. I felt that way my whole life. Partly why I went into the ministry is because I wanted to sort of do away, do away with that kind of Christianity where God speaks to crazy people, only further validating their craziness. Do you believe God speaks? And as, a, as somebody who likes to see himself, as somebody who thinks, somebody who analyzes, somebody who's being intellectually honest, uh, not just about their thinking, but about their agenda as well, uh, I have come to conclude that God speaks. I do. I look back on my life and I see that God speaks. God has communicated truths to me. God has communicated powerful realities to me in ways that were totally transformative, ways that stuck to me, things, ways that hold, words that hold on to me, even if I don't hold on to those words myself. How does God speak? Uh, I think the primary way that I have come to understand the way God speaks is through other people. And so that's where I want to go uh, to today. And the logic, if you'll track with me, is this. If you believe in such a thing as wisdom, if you believe in wisdom, that means that you believe that there's a design to things, right? If there's a right way and a wrong way, if there's a better way and a worse way, if there's something that's more accurate to the description of how reality works, that means you believe that there is some sort of logic and, and sense. That's called design. And if you believe in design, that means you have to believe in a designer. There has to be some kind of intent and thought and thinking decision-making that's happened beyond things that are just haphazard. Now, I've, I've toyed around with this flow over the years, and I just can't conclude anything else. If I believe in wisdom, and I do, that means I believe in God. And I think this illustrates it. <laughs> this is just a loop, so it's going to keep going while I talk for the next five minutes. I, um, when I was in middle school, I had this teacher. He was one of the best teachers I've ever had in my life. And he was really into yo-yos. It's one of his pet, quirky little loves. And he would make his own yo-yos. And he taught the whole class how to make our own yo-yos. And back then, yo-yos are different nowadays. But it used to be old school where there are two wooden pieces uh, cut out, sort of cylinders, and then in the middle, there's a, a metal piece that connects these two cylinders. And then there's a string. And then the string is waxed, heavily waxed, uh, right at the center where it <clears throat> wraps around the metal rod that connects the two wooden wheels. And then the other end of the string is tied to your finger, right, at, right about at the, um, this, this part, between the uh, first and second knuckle in the middle finger. And then you sort of just spin it down, and it spins on the wax. And I remember with the yo-yo, he, he taught us about centripetal force and centrifugal force and how the force that pulls in 
right? The centripetal force is perfectly balanced by the force that's pulling out. That's the centrifugal force, and that causes it to spin. And then the friction that's minimized by the wax causes the yo-yo to hang at the bottom of your thread, of your string, and then it spins. And if you tap it on the floor, you can walk the dog. Or if you bring it up, you can rock the baby. And he taught us all these tricks. And I grew up just kind of obsessed with yo-yos for a number of years. And even, even as recently as a month ago, I wasn't preparing to preach this sermon or use this illustration, I was looking up yo-yos on Amazon. It's just amazing that yo-yos are still a thing after all these years. If you type in yo-yo championships or competitions uh, on YouTube, uh, a lot of the winners are Asian, and that makes me feel so proud. (laughs) But you understand just a simple thing, a toy, a hobby, a pastime like a yo-yo has so much wisdom incorporated into how it works. People have to get wise about the reality of uh, centrifugal and centripetal forces and understand how to minimize friction, how to cut the wood perfectly so that it spins without sending a force in a direction you don't want it to go so that it's perfectly balanced. All of that is wisdom. It's an accurate understanding of the forces at work, of how reality works, And then you negotiate those terms in a way that allows you to look like a master of these forces. That's wisdom. This guy has very little of it. He's getting there, though. And then there's this guy. He is way wiser. He kind of looks like Braden Bilby a little bit. Like a shorter, less good-looking version, but Braden. And so what this means is that if you believe in wisdom, I think you believe in reality, design. There are forces at work, and you come to understand. Proverbs 3.19 says this, By wisdom the Lord laid the earth's foundations. And I think we can see this. No scientist ever trying to understand how the world works scoffed at it. No scientist was ever left unimpressed. You know, amazing, just this morning, I read uh, the, sort of the, uh, the abstract of a new research paper that was put out that was saying more and more the research is beginning to show that part of the reason why people can't overcome their fears has to do with an imbalanced gut microbiome. What? For, for centuries, we've been talking about how we don't have the guts to do it. We don't have the stomach for it. Turns out, we were being literal. <laughs> and finally, wisdom is beginning to show that those wise sayings were true after all. They were descriptive of reality. Truly, by wisdom, the Lord laid the earth's foundations. We discovered this connection between our gut microbiome and fear. God didn't discover it when we discovered it. Nobody had to send him a memo about this, right? He knew. To get wise, what this means is you have to come to terms with the powers and the forces and the realities that govern our experience, our way of being. Everything has some logic 
some truth, some wisdom behind it. And as we come to understand these forces, the fact that they exist, and we probe deeper into why they exist, how they can come to exist, you come to understand that God is the source of wisdom because he actually is the designer. He's the creator. If there are governing forces, isn't there a governor? If there are designs, isn't there a designer? And so today, when Mark shared his powerful story with us, and he concludes with those red slides that speak of God's love for him, Mark's not talking about some woo-woo experience he had. Christianity isn't just some emotional crutch that's somehow helping him to hobble along. It's not some coping mechanism. But he's describing some realities that you and I were made for unconditional love. Right? And he's coming to understand that and see that for himself. He's discovering this truth, this wisdom about how life works. And we know this. We know that little babies need love. We know they need unconditional love because if they had to meet conditions, by golly, none of them would be loved. You saw how awfully behaved all the kids were up here this morning? (laughs) And we love them anyway. And God in his wisdom made them cute for a reason. (laughs) We know this. We know we need love. That's true. That's wisdom. That's, that's, that's a reality that we have, to, we have to come to terms with. That's a force. It's a factor. Don't you see? It's not just an option. It's, it's not an option. If we are to persist as a race, we have to incorporate love into our existence. And to say we live by love and not by food alone, that's truth. That's a description of how life works. And so we say, Proverbs 9, 10, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. That if you begin to understand that God himself is love, that love has a source, that love isn't just by itself existing on planet Earth, but that it comes from the mind of someone. Somebody said love is the force. Love is the food that you need. That unless you are loved, you will not be functional. That your brain stops working, your body stops working. Everything breaks down if you are not fed love from the moment you're conceived. In fact, it's even better if you're conceived by love itself. That love itself is knitting you together in your mother's womb. That you are fearfully and wonderfully made. And then you are birthed into the context of love. And that love is what raises you up and turns the the cells, the, the blob of cells into a human being, a conscious human being, capable not only of receiving love, but of transmitting love. Because what's the alternative? Mark said it, right? It's transmitting pain. And somehow wisdom tells us that transmitting love is better than transmitting pain. And it's not just a choice. We know this to be a scientific fact that love is better than pain. And the only kind of pain that's good is the kind of pain that's used in the service of love. Pain that's used to communicate love. 
And so how can you believe in wisdom? How can you understand reality without understanding or coming to understand that believing in God is the beginning of it all? Where else do you start? Do you just start with wisdom? It just existed? Of course not. Of course not. So we say, if wisdom, then God. God speaks to you every day, every moment of your waking existence through his creation. God created everything in wisdom. Creation is the primary way that God speaks to you. If you believe in God, you believe in design. If you believe in design, you believe in wisdom. And if you believe in wisdom, you believe in the one who actually is wise. If wisdom, then God. That's the flow. Psalm 19 says this, the heavens declare the glory of God. Anybody see the sunset last night? Do you remember how red the sky was last night? I know it's beautiful, but beauty is, is, is a science. There's a science to beauty. Where did that come from? How did we perceive something that we call beautiful unless there is such a thing as beauty? And why would there be such a thing as beauty if there is not one who is beautiful? The heavens declare the glory of God. The skies proclaim the work of his hands. Day after day, they pour forth speech. Night after night, they reveal knowledge. They have no speech. They, ha they use no words. No sound is heard from them. Yet, their voice goes out into all the earth, their words to the ends of the world. I dare you. I dare your jaw to not drop when you see something amazing. Romans 1.20 21 says this, since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, his, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood from what has been made so that people are without excuse. For although they knew God, they neither glorified him as God nor gave thanks to him. But listen, but their thinking became futile and their foolish hearts were darkened. And so this is reality too. If A, then B. If B, then C. So here it is. If you, look at, if you looked at the sunset last night and you saw how visco the sky can be, I knew a few of you would love that. <laughs> Who didn't understand what I just said? <laughs> visco is an athletic. It's what the kids are saying these days. Come on, keep up. If you looked out at the sky last night and then you felt awe inside of you and then you didn't understand that there is one who is awesome, if you didn't make that connection, this is what's happening to your brain. Your thinking becomes futile. You begin to deny the source of reality, then your ability to perceive reality begins to diminish. And it's not just your intelligence, it's your emotional intelligence. Their foolish hearts were darkened. And so I'm not threatening you at all. I'm just saying if you, if you knock over the cup of water, it's going to spill. That's all I'm saying. It's not a threat. I'm describing reality here. This is what Romans says. Since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, his power, divine nature, it's clearly seen. 
the natural response, ancient, of, you know, from when, when human beings were first created, when they beheld nature, their first connection that they made when they beheld nature was to say, who made this? Because they understand things have to be made. They believed in God when they saw what God made and how he made it and how marvelous were his works. They said there is one who is marvelous. There's one who deserves to be marveled. That's God. And when you deny that, when you suppress that reaction, that natural and normal reaction, you're playing with a force that's going to begin to wreak havoc on you. You can't, you can't walk away from that suppression unscathed. Your, your mind begins to get futile and your hearts begin to get darkened. And then as we uh, move into the second half here, there is general revelation is what the theologians call it when God reveals himself through creation. And then there's something called special revelation. And this isn't the way theologians use it. Here's the way I'm using it today, though. I think the most special, the most sometimes helpful way, and I think it's really the most powerful way that God speaks to us is through other people. Other people are God's creation. The scriptures tell us that people are God's most precious creation. Of all the things he's created, there's nothing more precious to him, more special to him, that's most reflective of the image of God than other human beings. So we have Proverbs 27, our verse for the day. As iron sharpens iron, so one person sharpens another. Why is that true? There's, there's physics there, right? You notice how uh, it starts with physics. Can wood sharpen iron? No. <laughs> because hardness of the material that's doing the sharpening matters, right? There has to be a like unto like for sharpening to happen. And you don't want to uh, dispose of the sharpening stone that's just being ground down by the blade that you're sharpening. You want actually the two materials to be the same if they are to be mutually sharpened. There's, there's a lot of wisdom built into this metaphor, this analogy here. As iron sharpens iron, mutually sharpening each other, taking turns sharpening each other, sparks flying, so one person sharpens another. This is God's design. That of all the ways God speaks, God speaks primarily and most sharply through other people. I'm going to give you some verses just found in Proverbs. And I actually had to cut these down into one-third of the verses I found. There's two-thirds more. Proverbs 12.1, whoever loves discipline loves knowledge, but he who hates reproof is stupid. Proverbs 13.24, whoever spares a rod hates his son, but he who loves him is diligent to discipline him. 
Proverbs 29, 15, the rod and reproof give wisdom, but a child left to himself brings shame to his mother. Proverbs 23, 13, do not withhold discipline from a child. Proverbs 29, 17, discipline your son and he will give you rest. Proverbs 13, 1, a scoffer does not listen to rebuke. Proverbs 19, 18, discipline your son for there is hope. Proverbs 17, whoever heeds instruction is on the path to life, but he who rejects reproof leads others astray. Proverbs 15.32, whoever ignores instruction despises himself, but he who listens to reproof gains intelligence. Proverbs 3, verse 12, for the Lord reproves him whom he loves as a father, the son in whom he delights. And on and on and on and on it goes about the necessity, the natural and normal way that God sharpens us is not directly but indirectly through other people. 1 Corinthians 3, verse 16. Don't you know that you yourselves are God's temple and that God's spirit dwells in your midst? Here's the other little physics thing here. If you believe in God, then people. That's what the verse says. Don't you know? If you believe in God, you have to believe in where God dwells. Where does God dwell? In other people. I know it's such an inconvenient truth. There you have it. If wisdom, then God. If God, then people. And I think this is the most difficult lesson for me to come to terms with. That the wisdom of God comes, often comes, maybe always comes through fools, through imperfect people, through broken people, through people that you can so easily tell don't deserve to be communicating God's truth to you. They haven't earned the right. They don't love you as they ought to. They don't read their Bible like they claim. They don't pray as much as they seem to. You know, they're not maybe as studied they're just, they're just a peasant, maybe even a carpenter's son, just from a small town, you know? But this is God's chosen way to choose the fools of the world to shame the wise. This is precisely why God does it, so that you would know that even when a person is speaking to you, the wisdom of God, you never ever mistaken it for somebody else being wise. It's just God's wisdom coming through that person. The task then for us is to trust that God speaks through other people. Now, I don't think that people are perfect. I don't think that you just take it and that's the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. No, you also are God's creation, and you also have a brain. You also live and move as an image bearer of God with the Spirit of God who dwells in you. And so you are obligated to be responsible and interact with it. Maybe somebody tells you something false, and that helps you to figure out what is true. But the fact that somehow God's Spirit is moving in and through each other, that is a fact. 
The whole interaction of it is the way God speaks. <clears throat> so I want to go through four major ways that I think God speaks, and then we'll close. The first one is obvious. Proverbs 27, 6 says this. Faithful are the wounds of a friend, but many are the kisses of an enemy. If you are a friend, you are obligated to speak the truth in love to your friends. If you don't, you're not really being a good friend. That's the truth. What do you think about that? And I don't think that you're going to be perfect in your communicating truth in love. I don't think that you're going to be able to say, thus saith the Lord at the end of your speech. But you are obligated to try. Now, you have to consider other factors. There's wisdom that abounds. You can't know one aspect of physics. If you try to do yo-yo, to make a yo-yo, but you only understand one element of it, you're not going to make a successful one. And so you should consider many, many different factors, like timing and tone and all that stuff, and checking your own heart and motives. All that matters. But you have to be willing. And I think this should be a regular practice of true friendships, wounding each other in the name of God. Second category is through the oneness of marriage, what I call oneness of marriage. Matthew 19, 5, 6 says this. And said, therefore, a man shall leave his mother, his father and his mother, and cleave to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. Now this uh, verse Jesus said in the context of divorce. Now I, I always, until this week, I always thought this verse meant there are some outside forces trying to separate husband and wife. Like I always read it as, therefore what God has joined together, let not another man separate. That's not what Jesus is saying. That's not the intent here. He's talking to the man that's actually married to his wife. Because all divorces in that context was initiated by the husband himself. A hundred percent of them. And what this means is there is a temptation, even if you don't literally divorce, there's a temptation to live not as one with your spouse to live separately from your spouse. And personally, I would testify to you that this past year, I really learned this lesson in a powerful way. I'm not going to go into it. But I just want to tell you, just because I love Susie and just because I pursued her for those four years before I got her to say yes to me, just because none of that means that I was necessarily living out of oneness in my marriage with Susie. It's possible to be married, but staying married is not the same as honoring that marriage. And to honor that marriage means you are committed to a kind of oneness out of which you live your life. A oneness out of which you make decisions. A oneness 
with which you move, a oneness that's perceived and experienced in truth by those around you. If there is a kind of contempt between you two, you're probably not living out of oneness. You know who you are. You know that your marriage isn't quite one. And I leave that to you to define for yourself. But I have learned that this is so important to live out of oneness. And others around you go, yeah, they are one. That's the whole mystery of marriage. Not half plus half equals one, but one plus one equals one. That's the mystery. That's the magic. And that's what I think this verse is talking about. Yeah, don't be too proud if you're not divorced. You might be living a divorced life anyways if you're not living out of oneness. God speaks through the oneness of your marriage. Sec, uh, third, Ephesians 6, 5 to 8 says this. Slaves, obey your earthly masters with fear and trembling, with a sincere heart as you would Christ, not by the way of eye service as people pleasers, but as servants of Christ doing the will of God from the heart, rendering service with a good will as to the Lord and not to man, knowing that whatever good anyone does, this he will receive back from the Lord, whether he is a slave or free. So I asked a friend of mine, this is back in Boston, so, you know, Maybe 20 years ago, I asked a friend. I said, name the one area, one context in your life that's caused you to grow the most. And he said, work. And I said, work? I thought you were going to say church or friends or parents or something. He said, no, it's the only place that will tell me the truth. If you are willing to grow in your workplace, you can. If you are willing to do your best as unto the Lord at work, you will hear the voice of God through your work. You can sort of roll your eyes at it and say it's just work. You can hate your managers. You can despise the corporate culture. You can do all of that. But if you will allow your workplace to speak to you, God will speak to you through your work through your work ethic, through your performance reviews. Even when Mark was talking about the toxic culture, God spoke to him through that. Mark knew, I don't want to be in that. That's God telling him, then go. That's God releasing him to be free from a toxic workplace. God will speak to you through work because you are there, and the way God sees it, you're supposed to be serving your workplace the way you would serve God himself. That's a matter of heart and conscience between you and God. And then finally, Revelations 21.3 says this, God's dwelling place is now among the people and he will dwell with them. They will be his people and God himself will be with them and be their God. God will speak to you through the church body. If you are willing to commit to a body, God will use the body to speak to you. Over time, you will look back at the body you have belonged to and you will see that this body has been shaping you and forming you and holding you and protecting you. Somehow, for some reason, God's commitment is to the church. The church is his bride. We are the local expression of that. As I think about having one week left here with you all, We've been talking a lot about what church we're going to next. 
I know I need to belong to a body because I need to experience the voice of God through the body politic and not just through my own self-curated institutions or resources. I need a church. And I want to share this with you that as I think about the 24 years of uh, being in professional ministry, I just can't think of another church that I feel more nourished by than this body. I've watched people who've left this church come back over the years. They, they don't know how to quit this place. People who've worked here have quit and then they become members here. People who've been pastors here come back here. People who left huffing and puffing because they were mad about something, oh, they'll, they'll be back. I've heard many of you say to me when I was afraid because somebody was leaving, you said, oh, they'll be back. Why is that? I've asked. And I think part of it is it's, there's, there's a kind of nurture in this place. And I've, I have felt it. I can't think of a place that I feel more encouraged by, more seen by, more loved by than this church. And I think that's a unique signature to this church. It is a good place. And so I'm sad to be leaving this place. I'm sad to be leaving you all. But I'm really excited to respond to the voice of God that I've heard in my life through people, through the church body, through all of you. I end with this thought. Jesus, the scriptures tells us, is God's final word of wisdom. And that's where we're going to go next week for my last sermon. I want to do a particular deep dive into why the gospel of Jesus the Christ is indeed the very wisdom of God. Amen. I will close us. Lord, we thank you for this worship that we get to engage in together week after week. We thank you that we hear your voice and experience the reality of you through this church week after week. I thank you for all the ways that you show up and all the work that you do through this church. Thank you for being wisdom to us. Thank you for being the voice of God to us. Thank you for speaking to us. We pray this in Jesus' name. Church, uh, I'm going to do the benediction as well. Uh, we have offering boxes in the back for your continued worship by giving back to God what he has given to you. We have Holly ready to pray with you uh, if you would like that today. And uh, I bless you with this benediction. You fools, go find wisdom. <laughs> and you wise, go help some fools. In Jesus' name, go in peace.